Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are newer to our church, my name is Dave. Um, it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And we have been going through a new short series on something called the Seven Deadly Sins. How many of you before the series had heard of this list of the seven deadly sins? Okay. So if you, may have, if you grew up in the church, you may have heard of it. It's not a list that occurs in the Bible, but it's a list that was developed over hundreds of years by men who spent their whole lives pretty much in the desert pursuing God and trying to understand the nature of spirituality of the human heart and of who God is. And they discovered that there were seven key distortions of the human heart that they could identify, which led to every other sin that people committed. In other words, the seven deadly sins were not the worst things people could do, but they were the foundational things that went wrong in the human heart that led to all the other sins coming out. And this morning, we've arrived at number two, which is wrath. I'm sorry, number three. We've already covered pride, and we've covered envy. Uh, If those are topics that are near and dear to your heart, um, I would really commend you, if you miss them, to go back and try to listen to them and devote some thought to the role that pride and envy have on the way that you experience life and relate to other people. This morning, we're going to talk about wrath, and this list is called the seven deadly sins, and... Without pressing the pun too far, I think wrath may very well be the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. And that's in part because, that's in part because often wrath expresses itself in terrible fits of rage and even violence. I think it's impossible to turn on the news on any given day and not see examples of this. People who got so angry, they no longer felt that they could fear the consequences of what they were going to do. And they did terrible things to other people because they were so angry. Have you ever been so angry that you almost lost sight of what you're doing? Have you ever been so angry that you were just blinded by the anger that you felt? We know that anger is very, very dangerous. And some of us, our lives have been deeply scarred by the anger of another person, haven't we? I mean, some of you, your earliest memories are of someone who was supposed to protect you and take care of you being seriously angry at you and scaring you to the depths of your being. And yet we also read in the Bible that God was angry. God who is perfect, who is sinless, the Bible records that he on occasion became angry, not just a little annoyed, but very, very angry. So it leaves the question, how does God feel about anger? Is it ever okay for us to feel angry, to be angry? I think to explore the answer to that question, we've got we've to at least start by saying, what made God angry? What ticks God off? What sets him off on his anger? 
And there are so many things we could identify, but there are really, it's, it's what makes God angry is sin in the human heart. Rebellion against him, and it's often sin expressed in two important ways. One is injustice, where we violate the character and heart of God, where we do things that are horrible, that are reprehensible morally to God, and also hatred, which is acting in a way that is devoid of love towards other human beings. In the face of injustice and hatred, God so often displayed righteous anger. And so if that is the kind of anger we feel, then I believe anger is justified. Righteous anger is the appropriate and sometimes the only appropriate response to injustice and hatred. But even in the face of righteous anger, and there is such a thing, I believe, the early church fathers who formed this list of seven deadly sins consistently warned, be careful though, even when your anger is righteous anger, be very careful how you handle anger, because anger is like boiling metal, it's like molten metal, you cannot hold it for too long before it starts to actually damage you too. It doesn't matter if the anger you feel is righteous and you're on the right side of a moral issue. Always treat anger in your heart with great humility and care because anger has a naturally corrosive effect on the human spirit. Even when our anger, and by the way, If it's not righteous anger, if it's just you're upset because someone disrespected you, it's not that you have no right to personhood or dignity, but if it's just a personal slight or a personal offense, Jesus is very clear, Paul is very clear how you handle personal slights, disrespect, offense. You don't grab a gun and blam, blam, blam. You don't rip people apart. You forgive and you humble yourself. That could not be clearer, and it's beyond the scope of this message. I don't want to dig into that, but I want you to know that if what you're angry about is that someone disrespected you, hurt your feelings, dishonored you on a personal level, the Bible is very clear how to respond to that. It gives us a roadmap, and the roadmap is the way of forgiveness and humility and grace. But there are times when the things that make us angry should make us angry, that if we remain silent and passive, we add to the darkness of the world. We let evil keep moving forward. And there are times when we have to. But even then, because we're sinful beings and we are unreliable vessels to hold something as powerful as anger, we have to be careful because even righteous anger left too long in our unreliable hearts can very easily turn into bitterness, arrogance, and even violence. I've started to do a little more reading on the history of the African-American people in the United States. I've started reading in some nonfiction areas, and I've also started reading some fictional accounts. And I have to tell you that it is nearly impossible to read the story of black America and not get very upset. Some of the Some of the stories of injustice and hatred that I'm reading, I'm not African-American, but my blood begins to boil. And I just keep thinking in my mind, if this was done against my people group, here's the, the thought that has repeated again and again, how hard it would be 
to resist the, the draw of a violent response in the face of that. I've often thought as I'm reading these things, if that were me and my people, I would probably have followed Malcolm X more than Martin Luther King. And yet, I marvel at the grace and the humility that Dr. King consistently displayed. Look look at what he writes in his book, The Strength to Love. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence. Adding, listen to this beautiful phrase, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I believe the first person he's addressing with those words is himself. And if I had to lead a movement with the conviction of the gospel behind me, I would have to say that to myself nearly every day just to make it from morning till night. It is so easy for even righteous anger to become something really destructive and unrighteous because we are imperfect vessels to hold something as powerful as anger. So I'm not saying be leery of righteous anger. It is the right response to injustice and hatred. But even then, be careful how long you hold it and nurse it in your heart. Be careful what that righteous anger leads you to do because in the end, anger, even righteous anger, can change us more than it changes the world. St. Thomas Aquinas offered us some really helpful guidance on how to spot righteous and unrighteous anger. What are the distortions of anger we have to be on our guard against? And I think this is really helpful. One distortion he says is it's getting angry too easily. That's being, uh, having a hair-trigger temper, being irritable, annoyed all day long. Uh, do you know people like this who are angry all the time about everything? Do you? I think we all know someone like that. If you don't know anyone like that, like I always say, then it's you. You're the person who is that. I mean, that's just how it goes. If you can't name the person, you are that person. Another distortion of anger is getting angrier than we should. Overreacting, like, yeah, you should be angry, but dude, not that angry. That was crazy. Where did that come from? It's a little too much. And the third distortion is staying angry longer than we should. Letting it linger and become something like a permanent condition. I want to quickly explore each of these in turn because I think this is a helpful thing for us. If you suspect you might have an anger problem, I want to explore with you how to discern that in your own life or in the life of someone you care about and what we can do about that. Are you marked by this first disorder that you're too easily angered? Let me ask you a question. Would people describe you as an angry person? Is anger the main emotion people associate you with? Like they they haven't experienced too many other emotions on the spectrum with you, but anger, they can always say, yeah, that's an angry person. Would you say that people would describe you as an angry person? Do you have the guts to ask around 
and ask some of the people closest to you, hey, what emotion do you most closely associate with me on a regular basis? What do you think others would say about you? This is different from being a person who experiences anger on a regular basis. It's somebody who is just angry as a default posture of their heart. They're angry about everything. And then when there's nothing to be angry about, they're angry that there's nothing to be angry about. Why is everything going so well? Ticks me off. There's just some people for whom anger is the easiest, most familiar emotion. It's the one they've rehearsed the most often. And yet Paul is very clear when he describes what a life looks like that is marked by the love of God. He says that a follower of Jesus Christ, somebody marked by God's love, is not irritable, or as the NIV puts it, easily angered. If you follow Jesus and the love of God permeates your heart, it has washed over you, one of the marks is you are not a person with a short hair trigger temper. I don't know how else to say it. You you can't say it more. If you want to claim that the love of God is the growing force that defines your life, that controls you, then easily angered is not going to be a long-term part of how people describe you. And if you find that anger is your first go-to and you quickly go to anger on a regular basis, something is not right in your heart. It's not just that something's wrong with the world. Something is wrong inside of you. And I don't say that in judgment or criticism. I'm saying you have to deal with that because you cannot make the whole world stop making you angry. I wish I could. I wish I could instantly control Z, control alt, delete every annoying person, but then I would also disappear along with them. We'd all be in some other place going, what happened? Oh, we just came to another world where we all still suck and... How can you do it? You can't make the world annoyance-free. You can't get rid of everything that angers you. And if all day, every day, your main emotion is anger, something is not right inside of you. I shouldn't say that so angrily. I'm sorry. But what I'm trying to say is the problem isn't out there. Yes, it is, but that will always be a problem. But a hair-trigger temper points to a problem in here. James, who is also the younger brother of Jesus, wrote to a church that was scattered all over the place and being persecuted constantly for their faith. Now, I don't know if you have ever experienced that. Maybe the worst is people snickered and laughed at you when you prayed for your food in the cafeteria. I'm amazed at how intimidating that really is. I remember as a high school student, I had all these tricks for faking when I prayed it in this high school cafeteria. I'd act like, oh, I have a headache. Lord, thank you for this. Because I just didn't want people to see me praying for my food because I was embarrassed. And that may be the extent to which we have been persecuted for our faith. I don't know, maybe you've endured worse. But he's talking to a people who have a legitimate reason to feel upset about the way their life is going. People are trying to kill them, do harm to them, take away their livelihoods, all because of who they believe. And to them, who have a legitimate reason to be angry, James has the audacity to write this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In other words, if you follow Jesus... 
One of the things that will mark a growing maturity in Christ is that you don't get angry so quickly anymore. How does one become slow to anger? Because it's easier said than done. You know, have you ever said to a, a person, hey, stop being so mad. Don't you wish that worked? Hey, cut it out. Stop being angry. And you're like, oh, okay. <sighs> I just feel so. It doesn't work, right? Because your blood is boiling. Your, your blood is up. You're just really upset. And you can't really control how that makes you feel right in that moment, can you? So how does a person train their heart to become slower to anger? James embeds the key right in there. He says, you, you get there by two key things. You stop talking so much, and you actively listen more readily. Paul Tournier, who was a Swiss medical doctor, and a, what, perhaps the most well-known Christian physician of the last century, that doesn't mean much to you because we don't really rank Christian physicians in terms of celebrity status, but if we did, he'd be number one. And he wrote this famous line, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. What a powerful phrase. Does that feel like the family you live in? The place where you work? Don't jab the person next to you, even if you're sorely tempted to but does it ever feel to you like the people who most affect you never listen to you you can't actually be heard by by them and yet does it also occur to you you probably stopped listening to them a long time ago too this dialogue of the deaf marks and describes our world so well everyone's shouting on social media and not one person is actually listening to anybody else it's the most frustrating kind of cultural moment we live in everybody screams no one listens it's like like we misread the bible and said be be quick to speak and slow to listen but it's exactly the opposite of that what James says is the way to become slower to anger is to go the extra mile in actually listening to other people. That doesn't mean they're always right. But just because you are offended, and justifiably so, doesn't mean there's nothing for you to learn about that person. I, I introduced you to this person two years ago. I can't think of a better illustration, so I'm going to revisit him. This is Theo E.J. Wilson. He gave a TED Talk in Colorado once. And I listened to this talk, and it, it really, really marked me. See, he realized after Charlottesville that he found himself getting more and more angry about the state of the treatment of blacks in America, but he also realized he was in an echo chamber. An echo chamber is when the same people who agree with you are the only ones you ever listen to, and they're high-fiving you, charging you on, going, right on, we are all angry, and we're not going to take it anymore. And this was what he was listening to all day and all night. And yes, they were right, but there was no other perspective at all in his soundscape. And so he did something really radical. You know what he did? He disguised himself online and joined a bunch of alt-right neo-Nazi websites. You know the kind that just spew white supremacy hatred? Where everybody who is not white is of the devil, and it was that kind of thing. And he said it was really hard at first to read the stuff and not have this visceral reaction. But here's what he said. I, I went in intending to actually understand what makes people say these things. Feel these things. Why would a person who believes that kind of horrific stuff actually get to that point in their life? 
It can't just be whiteness that's making them do that. He, he just refused to believe that being white makes you this way. So he wanted to understand because he realized he had just demonized an entire race the way he felt he was being demonized, and he wouldn't do it anymore. And so he began to interact with these people and to listen. And here's the great surprise that blew me away. He said, I couldn't still, I, to the very end, he couldn't stomach the hatred he was hearing. But he got past the hatred, and he heard something else. He heard that these people weren't just filled with hate, but they were filled with real fear, real distress. They felt that they were being persecuted for being what they couldn't help being, and they didn't like the way that felt. What he realized was they're not as far apart from him as they thought. And the words he used was a surprising compassion began to well up in my heart for people that I thought were my enemy. I think that is a beautiful example of what it means to be slow to speak and quick to listen. That doesn't mean you're going to justify the other side or that they'll ever come to a moral high ground or be in the right. But what it says is you will not feed that hair-trigger impulse to get angry and find satisfaction in it just because you have the moral high ground. And very few things in our personal lives are that black and white, are they? That dispute you're having with your parents about how long you could stay up, how late you could stay out, how long you can play the game or use the car or who's going to pay for gas, all that stuff. Are you listening to each other at all? That dispute you're having with your mate, are you hearing each other at all? It's not about saying they're right. That's not the goal. It's to actually hear what is driving what they're doing. Are you with me so far? So if you're too easily angered, that's not an okay place to park and just go, yeah, that's just how I am. That is not okay with God, and it should not be okay with you. Let me give you a second one. It's getting too angry. This is the person who's like, dude, enough. Calm down. Have you ever been told to calm down? You don't like it, do you? It's not a good feeling when people are like, dude, settle down. You're going crazy. It's embarrassing. I've, I've been told that on an occasion or a hundred, and, you know, I have a tendency towards spazziness and strong, passionate reaction to, to things. By God's grace, I have to say, anger and profaneness have really been redeemed over the course of my life by the grace of God. But I, ha- I can't tell you I can identify with this feeling of being so angry you see red. People with anger problems always put the focus on the other people who made them angry. And the most dangerous thing that could happen to an angry person is they could point to a culprit and say, they made me angry, that was wrong, and they're right. That in fact, they are justifiably angry over something that happened. And because they're right, they park there and they just let it stew and burn. They're not just going down the hill on the skateboard. They're doing this downhill. You know what I'm talking about? And what's going to happen if you keep doing that? See, for angry people, the problem is never here. It's always out there. You all made, look what you made me do. That's the national anthem of every abusive parent on earth. Look what you made me do. They didn't make you do anything. You did it. You did it because you have an anger problem. 
that you have not submitted to the God who changes us. Can God relate to people who are annoyed that the world is filled with annoying people? (laughs) If anyone in the universe can identify with that, relate to it, it's God. And yet what I find surprising is in addition to the divine wrath we read about, one of the most consistent descriptions of the heart of God throughout the Old Testament is this phrase, slow to anger and abounding in love. This describes God, in fact, it's not just in one refrain over and over in one psalm. If it was like eight times in Psalm 103, I would be like, all right, whatever. He was on a God is slow to anger kick. But this is spread out over thousands of years across eight different places. It says God is this way. Despite the fact that there is so much to make him angry in the world, one of his central descriptions is he is slow to anger and abounding in love. His reaction to us is not always what we would expect. It's so often a softer, more merciful approach. And yet, among human beings, it's not uncommon to see people who become so angry that they... What what do we say when we become so angry we're we're embarrassingly out of control? We say, sorry, I lost it. Have you heard that phrase? Man, he lost it out there. What does lost it mean? It means he lost any sense of composure, of presence, of self-control. He just gave in to the fire and let it burn. And all of us walked away singed because of it. How many of you have been around someone who lost it? (laughs) And I think most of us at some point in our life were the person who was losing it. And you know what that feels like? It's weird. It's like it's scary, but it's also kind of fun. There's, remember last week, Joseph Epstein, I quoted him, he's saying, envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that's no fun at all, right? There's no pleasurable version of envy. Oh, I love that they all have so much more stuff than me. There's no way to get pleasure from envy, but wrath. Oh, there's a kind of weird pleasure in burning, especially with what we believe is righteous anger. I should not have been treated this way. That was wrong, and I'm going to just let it... Fits of rage is one phrase that Paul uses to describe the person who lives out of the natural impulse and is not controlled by the Spirit of God. He's contrasting a person who lives life in the natural just as any mammal would, and he's comparing that person to someone in whose life the Holy Spirit of the living God has taken over and is possessing them. Another way of looking at it is when you have an evil spirit, it manifests in certain ways, right? You've all seen The Exorcist. This pea soup comes out of your mouth. When you're possessed by an evil spirit, evil just starts coming out of you. You can recognize it from a mile away. But he says also when you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, you can see it a mile away. There are visible signs of being controlled and dominated by the Spirit of the living God upon you. And one of those is that you no longer are given to fits of rage. That doesn't mean it never happens, but it happens very rarely because something is changing in you. It's very tempting to give in to righteous anger when we feel it. And every one of us in this room has felt righteous anger before at some point. 
But righteous anger can very easily become excessive and unrighteous anger because our hearts are deceitful and unreliable. Sometimes the reason that we enjoy giving ourselves over to excessive anger is because it kind of excuses us from what happens next. Hey, who could blame me? How would you be if that happened to you? I mean, can anyone... That's, that's the phrase with which so many people jump off the cliff. They do things that normally they would never do and would be condemned for doing, but because of their circumstance, because their anger is justified, they feel like the whole world will conspire with them to say, well, that's what I would have done too. I would have punched them in the face too. I would have done exactly the same thing in your shoes. And when we feel others would agree with us, it brings this kind of warmth and comfort to say, what I'm about to do next, listen, who wouldn't do it the way I'm about to do it? That's the entire legal doctrine of provocation and temporary insanity. That's what that whole defense is built on, is this idea that if someone does something bad enough to you and you're that disturbed, that angry over it, temporarily you lose your mental capacity and you're less culpable for what you do because of it. Paul writes a different story, though. He says it's one thing to feel anger, to be in its grip, But even then, when you feel anger, it's strong and you are in its grip. And even when that anger is justified, it never gives us a license to sin because of our anger. This is one of the great dangers of righteous anger, is that it feels like somehow in my righteous anger, whatever I do to vent it, to exhaust it, seems okay. That because I'm on the right side of the issue, I'm always going to be on the right side of God, no matter how I express it. Do you know you could stand for the right thing in the most horrible way? Do you know that it's possible to be on the right side of a moral issue, but do it in a way that is reprehensible to God and an offense to everyone you're saying you're defending? What Paul establishes is that even when, and perhaps especially when, we are angry, we are nonetheless responsible for what we do. And he wouldn't command it unless God also supplied the power in our anger not to give in to that fire heedlessly. When he says, in your anger, do not sin, what he's saying is that through the Holy Spirit, through the presence of Jesus in us, it is possible even in that moment of fiery anger, to have some control over what we choose to do in that anger. Being angry never gives us a license to sin. And here's the thing. He also says, related to this passage, that you have to be careful how long you hold anger in your heart. Even when our anger is justified. God puts a limit on how long we can hold that anger in our hearts. Why? Because he says, it is dangerous for you, a fallen human being, to nurse anger as though it's going to be a permanent situation. You know, if you watch the Avengers, you know that Bruce Banner is supposed to return eventually. He's not supposed to stay green, is he? But he did for a long time, didn't he? Are there any Avengers fans? There was a problem because he wasn't changing back. 
There was a while where he, and then he kind of in the, well, I don't know if I should give the spoiler. If you, haven't, if you haven't seen it yet, man, I don't know. Hurry up and get out there. But the idea is this is the normal ebb and flow for the Hulk. Is he goes from the Hulk back to a nerd. Hulk, nerd, Hulk, nerd. And nerd is supposed to be the default state. That he's supposed to get like, and in his anger, he becomes all powerful. But that's not supposed to be a permanent situation. Righteous anger, like food left on the counter too long, spoils over time. Even if the anger is righteous, if you nurse it and cultivate it, it's not supposed to grow in your heart like a garden. Your heart was not meant to be a little garden patch where you grow a crop of anger. Anger is meant to be a response to real things, but it's not supposed to be a permanent condition even for the followers of Jesus. Because if you leave it there too long, I promise you this, and I think Scripture points to this as well, it gives the enemy of God an access point into your life. That's what he's saying here, that if you leave anger stewing too long, it gives the devil a foothold. It allows you to go from saying, I'm hurt by you, mom and dad, to one day I'm going to leave and you're going to be sorry. Sometimes it leads to one day I'm going to buy a shotgun and you get the idea, horrible things happen when we just leave even righteous anger stewing there and nursing it, cultivating it, repeating the the offenses against us and saying, whatever I do next, it's on them, not on me. And what God is saying is when you do that, The enemy loves it because it gives him an invitation to come and do his work. I was reading a book called Sinning Like a Christian. The title got me right away. It's it's about the seven deadly sins, but a book called Sinning Like a Christian, you got to read it, right? I mean, it's very interesting. And it's written by a Methodist bishop named Will Willimon. Some of you may have heard of him. He was the dean of the chapel at Duke University and now is a professor in the Duke Divinity School and is also a Methodist in the, in the southern district of the Methodist Church in America. He's a, he's a bishop. And he wrote in this book the story of an encounter he had with a widow in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Some of you may be familiar. I'm not necessarily looking in the front because I know you guys hate history, right? Does anyone like history? Anyone? A. Push, your favorite subject? Okay. It was, a. Push was my favorite. AP U.S. history is by far my favorite subject in school. I love history. And when you read about the troubles in Northern Ireland, there were so many horrible things done by people who lived in the same town, on the same block, on the same street. This widow was a widow because one day her husband, who happened to be a leader in the local prison, was named a fair target by the IRA. And as he got in the car to drive off to work, she was standing at the door with her little daughter between her knees And a car pulled up, and some men stuck a gun out the window and shot him in the face five times and sped off. She ran out quickly. After she shut the door to not get shot herself, she ran out to see if her husband was okay, and she stumbled upon a bloody horror. Her husband was mangled so badly in the shooting that they could not even display his face to his mother at the funeral. I don't know about you, but what would you be feeling in that moment? Knowing that these men had killed your husband, the father of your child, not because of anything personally done, but because of what he stood for. 
And in that moment, you know that your life is going to be infinitely harder and far more lonely than you ever anticipated it would be. And Willimon asked her in that moment, how did you keep going after that? And he wasn't just setting up. He was really curious. If that happened to me, I don't know if I'd make it. How did you keep going? Listen to what she says in response. Well, that very moment as I stood there over his horribly bloody body, I started saying the Lord's Prayer. I got as far as forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And I said at that point, Lord, you have forgiven so many of my sins. So I guess you expect me to forgive others of their sins. I will try to do that. But you'll have to help me every day not to be destroyed by anger. Every day. And the Lord gave me that wonderful gift. I was able to forgive. I let God be angry with them or punish them or forgive them or whatever the Lord chose to do with them. I chose to forgive. The gunman killed one of the most wonderful men in the world. And none of them has ever was ever convicted of the crime. But my anger was no match for God. God wouldn't let the anger of it all kill me. That blows me away. I hope it blows you away too. That is powerful. What she's saying is that she was able to move on because she acknowledged that even as she stands in hatred and judgment over these men who did a senseless thing, She never forgot that she also was a sinner forgiven much by a holy God, the only one who has a right to be indignant at the whole world. She was able to let go of anger in this beautiful picture because she was honest about how hard it was going to be forever. And she was honest about who she was in this big picture. That while she was certainly not guilty of murder, she was guilty of much and had been forgiven much. And while you cannot compare in proportion, she acknowledged that she would always, even on the best day of her life, still be a sinner, saved by grace. And maybe most importantly, she handed it over to God and trusted God to be God. That's hard to do. That may be, in fact, the hardest part of letting go of our anger, especially righteous anger, is God, will you do something one day about all of this? Can you be trusted to do justice, to defend me, to make things right? And if you take the place of God and hold on to your anger because you cannot let those people go, they are not the ones who end up in prison. You are the one who will find themselves in bondage years later. And that's the greatest irony and cruelty of unforgiveness, is it leaves you the victim, and the offender has moved on years ago. Have you ever gone at a retreat up to someone and said, because the speaker was saying, go and reconcile with all the people you hate? You know how many times people have made a line in front of me? I'm like, geez, <laughs> how many people have I made angry? But they're like, uh, so like years ago, I just want to say, you broke my heart. You totally changed my life when you did this. And I can't tell you how many times I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't even remember doing that. They're, they've been walking with this for years. 
It's like a defining moment. I don't even remember doing it. What cruelty and unforgiveness is that you think they are just as much in bondage because you haven't released them. The only person you haven't released is yourself. Someone said, you probably all heard this, that unforgiveness is like eating poison and expecting your enemy to die. Stupid. You're the only one who dies when you nurse anger forever. Let me give you some practical responses and I'll end. These These will go quickly. One is study your anger. Do you suspect you might have an issue with anger? I know that can be humbling to consider, but if enough people have told you, dude, calm down. Hey, sister, take it easy. Shh. Don't get so carried away. Don't be so mad. If you've heard that over and over, if you admit that your biggest struggle, one monk, a desert father who helped form this list, he said, for 20 years, the struggle of my prayer every day was God Free me from the slavery of the anger that's in my heart. 20 years every day, this guy's one quest spiritually in the desert, full time, was to conquer anger. Anger is a serious issue. And if you have it, you're not alone. You have a lot of company in this life. If you suspect you have a problem with anger, well, if I told you, hey, I'm worried about that little dark patch on your neck, you might want to have that looked at, wouldn't you take that seriously? Or would you be like, I don't know, maybe it's skin cancer, maybe it's not. Who knows? You would go right away and say, Doc, hey, what is this? Someone was worried about it. Do you think I should be worried? Isn't that exactly what you do if a medical issue were identified? But do you know that before your body will kill you, your heart will probably kill you first? Your soul will kill you first? We have to take spiritual disease as seriously as physical disease. And if you have a problem with anger or you suspect that you do, study it. Here's one practical application. Keep an anger journal. Okay? Call it your mad book. I don't know what you want to call it, but when I'm doing premarital counseling, I always make the couples do this. They, they keep what we call a fight journal. Anytime you're upset with yourself, with your life, with your boss, or with each other, anytime you have an emotion that is negative, write about it. And here's how you can keep an angry journal. Every time you feel upset about anything, make an entry, note the date and the time, and a brief two or three sentence or longer description of what made you angry. And then rate it in intensity from one to five. One is, I was annoyed. Five is, I'm glad I didn't kill that person. Okay? Just write it down. And then study it after a couple weeks. Just walk away from it for a while. And return to the journal when your heart is cooled down. And look at what you wrote. Invite the Holy Spirit to accompany you and look at it and say, what am I seeing? And you might, you might spot patterns, triggers, Habits of the heart. And if you really want to know what what might be the problem, invite a trusted friend to come and give you a second opinion. Invite them to say, and a, a real friend, not the kind of friend who thinks loyalty is always being on your side. That's not a real friend. I hate to tell you guys, but anybody who's always on your side about everything, never says anything challenging to you, that is not your friend. That is your enemy. Your frenemy, maybe. Find a real friend who'll say the hard stuff and say, Read this journal and tell me if I'm nuts. What do you see? You'll probably find some really, really helpful stuff. And let me end with this. Second is just start to become more honest about your feelings. 
And I say this because very often, anger is a convenient mask that shields other underlying emotions that are even more serious. Very often when a person is habitually angry, they are covering over a more fundamental emotion. They're feeling other things like embarrassment or fear or insecurity or guilt, shame. They're feeling all kinds of negative emotions, but those other negative emotions take away our dignity. They leave us vulnerable. It's hard to say, you know what? I feel guilty. I'm afraid. You know how some of the biggest bullies are actually very tiny people. Their hearts are tiny little things. They're very scared and insecure, and they lash out because it's easier to say I'm angry at the world than I'm terrified of the world. One of the emotions that anger most commonly masks is sadness. So if you've ever sat with me for relationship counseling, you have heard this line, I guarantee it. When you are sad, don't be mad. That's my contribution to nursery rhymes. When you're sad, don't be mad. Just be sad. Do you know how many times we express as anger what is actually grief, sorrow, pain? But that's because sadness makes us vulnerable. Sadness makes us feel weak. It means someone else holds the power, and I need to get control and power back. And anger is a lazy way of doing it. Anger is a quick way to gain back some measure of control, or so we think. Rebecca DeYoung, who wrote a book on the seven deadly sins called Glittering Vices, has this to say. I'll close with this. Even in grief, it is easier to shake your fist at God than to live face to face with sorrow that won't go away. To be angry is to feel in control again, to assert our will against a world not aligned with it. Listen to this. It is much easier to be angry than to be helpless, to be angry than to accept suffering. I'm going to tell you that a lot of stuff in this life is not going to go your way, and not all of it can be made right or fixed. We will not get justice for everything done against us. I can guarantee you that. Some offenses will stand until the day you die, unrepented, unapologized for, uncorrected. That is part of what it is to live among other humans in this broken world. And yet God has not left us completely without power. He says, if you will be sad... I will come in your sadness and lift your spirits. He said it over and over. He casts down the high and he raises up the low. In other words, if you're willing to be vulnerable, if you're willing to say, what I'm really feeling is not anger, but I'm devastated. I'm shattered by this. I'm terrified that you're leaving me, that you don't love me anymore. If I could just humble myself and admit that, then God says, I will come to you in your distress and I will raise you and lift you. I will minister to you. But if you insist on being angry, even when you should be sad, if you insist on being angry, even when you're embarrassed, afraid, guilty, ashamed, how can God meet you when you're not even honest about where you are? So the invitation is, Be honest about what you're actually feeling because anger is the mask we wear most often. 
to cover over the other things that are tearing us apart. Can I invite you to just join me in responding to the Lord? Maybe for you, what you're hearing is a sermon that should be heard by someone who's really hurt you because their anger has ruined your life. Would you pray for that person? Instead of just being mad in return, would you pray that that person, whatever it is that's wrong in them, that makes them so angry all the time, would you pray that God will soften it? Will take away that poison of anger? Maybe it's you right now who needs that prayer. Maybe there's an anger over something in your life that just won't go away. And you're valiantly trying, but some days are good and some days are not good at all. I want to invite you to take anger very seriously. And don't wait for the universe or other people to make things right. Cry out to God because anger is often an invitation to really depend on Him. Say, God, I can't make this right. There's nothing I can do here. But I believe you can help me. Meet me in this place and do something about what I feel. So I'm going to give you a minute of silence in your own heart, your own words, to respond to God. And then we'll sing a closing song, and I'll come up and close the the worship service. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.